Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Sue Meck. Her memoir is called I Forgot to Remember. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today, Sue. Thanks for having me. So this is a memoir of amnesia, and it starts, I guess, close to 25 years ago now with a traumatic brain injury. And let's talk a little bit about, well, I can't really say what you remember about this injury, but what you've pieced together about what happened to you that created this condition. It was in 1988. We were living, my husband and I were living with our two children in Fort Worth, Texas. And my oldest was almost two, and my youngest was about nine months old, was in the kitchen. It was a Sunday afternoon, and Patrick crawled up to me, and I picked him up, and his backside or his legs or something hit a fan that wasn't hung properly underneath the ceiling, and it came crashing down and hit me on the head, and then I hit the counter on the way down, and I hit the floor on the way down. So that's that was actually what happened. You were sent to the hospital. Yes. I was sent to a a sort of suburban hospital, and then they sent me to the city hospital where the neurology unit was much better, and they weren't sure exactly what was happening with me. I was in and out of consciousness, and a neurologist came in at you know midnight that night and talked to Jim and told him that it didn't look good for me. They weren't sure exactly. Again, it was in the 80s, so they didn't have quite the same medical technologies that we have now. But I did wake up on the Monday morning, and Jim came in, and I did not recognize him. And I didn't know where I was, who I was, or anything. To this day, I don't I don't have any memories of my first, you know, 22, 24 years of my life. One of the first remarkable things about the story, as we're hearing it, in the memoir, or reading it in the memoir, is that, you know, the extent of those injuries and and the consequences, the complete retrograde amnesia, that once years later, when you get access to your medical records and you're going over this, it seems like you were let out of the hospital or let back into the world really before they even had any idea what was going on, let alone, like, you know, had dealt with it. Yeah, that's... It was disturbing to me to read those medical records from this hospital, and I was hoping for those medical records to sort of hold the key as to why I am the way I am, and instead it just caused more questions in my mind. There are all kinds of discrepancies in those medical records. There are things that a nurse will say, oh, you know, Sue's great today, she's having a great day, and then you know, half an hour later, a nurse will come in and write something totally the opposite that, you know, Sue has no idea where she is and what she's doing. And I, I, you know, I had to help her open her napkin or, you know, whatever it is. There's, there are a lot of great discrepancies. There are things that said, you know, her left temple is is still bleeding. Well, it was actually my right temple. You know, it's like the right side of my head. There's, There's things in there about, she's a graduate of college. And it's like, I, never finished college. So there's a lot of a lot of things like that. And and I don't think they they understood the extent of my memory loss. I didn't I didn't hear the word retrograde amnesia until I started writing the book. So I didn't I didn't have that word in my vocabulary. And I, I let's underscore that for for listeners that 
experiential life for you? I mean, you're, you're, you, what you know of yourself, what you've experienced of yourself pretty much begins in that hospital. Everything before that, uh, or even maybe even later Way than later the hospital. Way later than that, like okay. several years later. I'm about the same age as my daughter in my own mind. And she was born in 1992. So even those first couple of years after the hospital, I, I don't have any real memories of those times. I have a lot of stories I've been told, especially since I wrote the book. I've learned a lot more stories, but I don't have any actual memories of anything in Texas at all. And then we moved to Baltimore, and I don't really remember Baltimore. It's not until we moved into a home in Montgomery Village in Maryland that I can sort of kind of begin to remember events. Everything before that, I mean, your life growing up, what you were supposed to be like as a kid and as a teenager, you're pretty much taking that on hearsay. I think that was one of the very confusing things that I didn't actually realize that I was confused about, but I think I was sort of all the time trying to maybe be like that other person was, but yet I wasn't that person now. So it was it was kind of a confusing world for me and in many ways what you just said about trying to be like that person kicks into something that you talk a lot about in the memoir in that because all of a sudden you're 22 and your socialization memories have like completely evaporated so you have no idea how to even be in the world exactly you spent a lot of time basically imitating what you saw around you. It's like, oh, okay, this is how women act. I'll, be, I'll act like this is how mothers act. I'll, I'll do this. I still do that. I still do that in situations that are unfamiliar to me. And, you know, maybe 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 all people do it to a certain extent, but I, I literally am copying motions of people around me. I mean, that's how I get by. And I, I think I learned how to do that way early on just by getting people's reactions. So if you get a smile, you're going to keep doing something that, because that's obviously something good that you're doing. And if you're not getting a smile, or if you're getting shouted at, then you don't want to do that anymore. So I think that's, I mean, it's, it's pretty basic kind of learning. And that leads us to something else that you write about a lot, the idea of work for the smiles, avoid the shouting. And that pretty much describes your home life. I mean, here you are. You... Wake up, you have no idea who you are, and this man tells you that he's your husband and that you've been married for you know, a number of years and that you're a family. And you have no concept of, at the time, you know, what a marriage is or, or even what a husband is. Exactly. I didn't even, those words probably weren't even in my vocabulary. And even as I learned the words, there's a, there's a concept of what a husband, I mean, you can know a definition of what a husband is, but then having it and understanding exactly what being married is and have, being a mother to young children is very different than understanding the word mother. As you're trying to build yourself back together, he is very much, if he's happy with how the way things are going, he smiles. And as you write, it's like if he's not happy with things, with how things are going, he explodes. Jim. Yeah, Jim, Jim yeah, your husband. Yeah, he's, yes. Again, the thing to remember here is we were both very, very young. When this happened, I was 22, and he was just turning 24. And suddenly, he's lost. He's basically lost a wife. He's lost the person who he married. And my kids have kind of lost their mother. At least, again, I'm the person that's here, and I look the same, but I have no concept of what's going on. So he's suddenly a single father of three. So, I mean, I, I can kind of understand now his frustration with 
life back then. That is actually one of the really remarkable things of I Forgot to Remember is the empathy with which you address his experience or, or the things that he, the things that are going on in his life while you're going through what you're going through. And that there are so many points at which I'm reading this, he's yelling at you or he's going off for months at a time or something else is going on. And I'm just like, why is this, why are you still here? And, and part of it is that it's like, well, you don't know anything else. I mean, I, I where, where, where are you going to go? Exactly. I didn't know anything else. So Benjamin and Patrick, again, were, were very little. I was young. Jim was young. It's just, it was, and I don't think I even had any kind of realization about any of this until I started writing the book at, at all. And that was when it was so like, wow, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. So many things hit me like a ton of bricks. There were so many times I just wanted to stop writing and just, I can't, I can't go down this path anymore, but I'm glad I did. I mean, I'm glad I finished it. But the whole thing with, with Jim is we didn't talk. <laughs> we didn't communicate. I couldn't communicate with him in anything more than very superficial. I could feed back to what he was saying, and that is what he thought I was agreeing with him or something. I had no idea what I was saying to him. I was just imitating. And so there was no communication. And so, of course, it was going to go down that bad path. Right, because as frustrated as he is, when he starts acting out, it's like you're certainly not in a position to put the brakes on him or, or like, call, call him not on it. Not at all. Not at all. And the boys, again, they couldn't either. They were little. I'm kind of glad I don't remember those first years too much, the very first years, because I think... I'm scared to death when I think about it. He would talk about coming home and the boys would be in the backyard and I was nowhere to be found. Or I would be in the backyard and the boys were nowhere to be found. Who knows? I have no idea what happened during those days when he went to work and I was at home with them. I have no clue. I have no clue. It scares me to death. You also talk about how the boys really sort of rose to the occasion in coping with you and what you were going through in, in the years before your daughter was born. I mean, they were almost your guardian as much as you were theirs, maybe even more. More so. <laughs> I would say more so, especially Benjamin. Benjamin is an amazing guy. He sort of took over as, you know, man of the house, and he's three, four years old doing this. It was funny when, when I had Dan DeVizet helped with a lot of the background information for the book. And when I, I wrote a passage about Benjamin being, we were in Houston, my parents lived in Houston at the time, and I had an episode where I had like a lightning strike. I don't want to call it a seizure because I'm not a medical person, so it was never called a seizure, but I would have sort of blackouts. And the kids were used to these, but my parents were not. And I fell down in their family room, and Benjamin, who is just past two at the time, said to my mom, she, he said, oh, grandma, don't worry. You know, mom does this and she'll be okay in a minute. And my mom was just appalled. But what Dan DeVizet said when I wrote this, he said, there's no way that Benjamin was two years old and saying this to your mom. And my mom is like, yeah, he was. He was very precocious. He was very verbal. Thank God he was, because I think he, he sort of took over and knew what was what starting so young. Now, you mentioned Dan DeVizet just now. I want to circle back a little bit, because this is how the memoir sort of began. How it all started, yes. Is that you had gone back to school, and as you were about to graduate from college, the publicity people at the college approached 
him. He's a reporter for the Washington Post and said, we have a really great story about a graduate in this year's class. And that became a profile of you. So I graduated from Montgomery College, which is a community college in Maryland with an associate's degree. And I think with most graduations, they, they will find a human interest story to write about in the post. And in 2011, Dan was contacted and he came by the house. And it's funny because we've laughed about it since. I don't think I said maybe two words during that whole interview because every all my family was in from out of town to, for my graduation. So Jim was telling stories and Benjamin was telling stories and my parents are telling stories. And I was just sitting there. I didn't know what I was supposed to say. I didn't know what any about anything. So it's it's kind of funny because that first interview wasn't anything from my voice, really. It's all from the family. And that was, you know, I started listening then and I was like, wow, I, I didn't know that. But yeah, he wrote a great piece for the Washington Post. Unfortunately, because it was just dealt with such a small part of my life, I, that was sort of when the seed was planted that I wanted to tell the whole story, not just, okay, here's this person that lost all their memories and now she's graduating from Montgomery College. Isn't she amazing? No, that's not at all. There is so much more to the story. How did that come about? Did people start calling him and he comes back to you or did people start tracking you down? And People started calling me like at my house. There were people that wanted me to do television shows and radio shows and all these literary agents began contacting me and I was on a path to go to Smith College and there was nothing that was going to get in that way. So I didn't want to do really any of this stuff. I said, I want to go to college. That's what I want to do. And, you know, they kept saying, oh, you can do both. You can go to college and write a book at the same time, which no, <laughs> that is, that is the worst mistake of my entire life is trying to go to Smith College and write a book at the same time. I if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. You talk about this in the book. One of the long-term effects of how you live your life is that you really sort of have no sense of a timeline. None. So deadlines and appointments and things like that, the idea of organizing them is kind of... It's meaningless yes. to me. I will always say yes when anybody ever asks me anything because that is when you get the smile, right? So I've been trained to always say yes. When somebody asks me to do something, I say yes. I have no idea. Well, it's not as bad as now. I was going to say years ago, it was nine times out of ten. I had no idea exactly what I was agreeing to. Now, it's probably about half the time, though. I, I don't really know what I'm saying yes to. And when Molly Lindley, who's my editor here at Simon Schuster, when she would say, yeah, I need these pages by, you know, let's just say July 15th. Sure. Awesome. And then July 15th, I mean, what does that even mean? That's meaningless to me, July 15th. Okay, I can look in a calendar and count the days until July 15th, but I have no idea what time that is, like how much time that actually is. Right. And between now and July 15th, you're, you're oh. not, not going to be thinking oh, about this. Oh, not at all. Not at all. It's in, my, it's in my head right now because I'm talking to her on the phone, but, you know, the minute that phone calls over, I'm something else that I have to do. Or And if it's during the school year... You know, I have this class and this class and these papers. You know, I had I had a I had a semester last spring where I had three English classes. Again, don't ever do that. It's really dumb. Thirty four papers in a semester that I had to write, and still working on this book. So it was it was very rough, actually. And Dan kind of helped in terms of pulling together a lot of the medical research. It sounds like Dan was great. He's a journalist, of course, and so that's what he does. He finds out things about why things are the way they are. He interviewed several 
neurologists and doctors and researchers and I don't know who all, and then put together kind of a explanation of how they think the brain works in human beings. Bless his heart, he has attempted to explain all of that and write it out for me, and I just, it's still so, I just don't get a lot of the science part. All I know is my, is the way I am, and the way I think, and the way things work for me. I don't get the necessarily the science behind the why-ness. And I'm not actually even that interested in it. People think that, that that I should be more interested in neurology and brain research. And I'm interested in in the fact that I think they need to know a lot more about the brain because I don't think that people should be let out of a hospital after three weeks if they don't even know who they are. I don't think that's probably a good way to go. But I just, I, w- I will never get it. I'll never really get the whole science you mentioned this when you were talking about the story coming out in the post and people starting to respond to it and to to contact you about it this idea that they had a very particular sort of concept of what they wanted your story to be in terms of traumatic brain injury overcomes adversity gets associates degree and everybody and, and, lives happily ever after and, yeah that's exactly i and, think that's what people want but your life is not like that. Not at all. Not at all. And I think that was, there were a lot of emails coming in saying, oh my goodness, you know, Jim is such a hero to have stuck by you through all of this. And, and it was just, it was, it was getting my nerves, honestly. That was when I think I sat down with all the family. So Jim and my kids and I all sat down and they were, a lot of people were really pushing for me to write a book. And so I sat down and I said, I'm willing to do this, but it's going to be the whole story. So it's going to be airing everything. It's going to say that Benjamin didn't graduate from high school, all the stuff about Jim's and my marriage. And because that is the story, it, I wouldn't be who I am. And, and I don't want other people to necessarily have to go through what I went through just because there is no understanding of what it's like to live with traumatic brain injury. And, you know, I think I had everybody's blessing at that point and I have to I have to give my family a lot of credit because I think it was hard for them to have to put their life out for the world to read about we are not a perfect family not anywhere close to be a perfect family it's one thing to agree to that in principle or in theory you know when you sit down and have that conversation and for everybody to say okay we're, we're fine with that mom let's let's do this now that it's out in the world how is it affecting everyone I think everybody Jim and Benjamin and Patrick and Cassidy are all so proud. Like, I really feel the love. I'm really feeling the love from the family. And throughout the process, of course, I would send pages or send anecdotes and stuff to the various kids and say, is this how you remember this? And they would give me feedback and I would, you know, sort of tweak it and stuff. So a lot of it they had read sort of throughout the process, but not until, you know, the final manuscript before it was bound, but before the I sent that out to everyone, my parents and my brothers and sisters and my kids, and had them read it and had them talk to me about, you know, what they thought should be changed or anything. And there was very little, um, there was very little that that I got back from that that people were like, no, you have to take that out. And, oh, gosh, Mom, please don't tell that story or, you know, whatever. There wasn't, there really wasn't any of that. So I have to give them a lot of credit for being all in, as they say. What would be the one thing that 
in you choosing to tell your story the way that you've told it, what do you want people to take away from that as the one thing that they should remember about your experiences or traumatic brain injuries? And... Well, that's that's an interesting point because what I don't want it to be, that again, this is my story, this is my experience, and even my experience that it has been related to me by others because a lot of this isn't obviously my own memory. I want it to be bigger. I want it to be about traumatic brain injury in general. I think every head injury, whether it's just a kid on a football field to a 15-car pileup car accident, every head injury is so different. And I don't think that there is enough known about the brain and about, even with all the new scans and technologies and stuff, doctors and families and friends have to listen to that person because that person is telling them, is giving them all the information they need. Yeah, you can look at a, a scan and say, well, I don't see anything wrong. But if that person is saying, oh my gosh, the whole world is orange. Why do I only ever see orange? Shouldn't that be sort of a key to say, wait, something is probably not right with this person. Even though we don't see it on the scan, maybe the fact that this person only ever sees the whole world in orange is, is a problem. So I think that's the kind of thing that people need to listen. And people with traumatic brain injury shouldn't feel afraid to speak out about what they're really thinking and feeling and hoping. Now, oftentimes, you know, it was years before I even knew that I was different. I didn't realize that I even had an injury. This was the way the world was and everything was fine. It wasn't you know, we lived we lived in Cairo for a couple of years, and the kids came home from school one day and said, Mom, did you know we were in Africa? And I thought it was like a joke. I thought it was like the beginning of like a joke that they were telling me, like, what's the punchline? It's like, no, really, Mom, we're in Africa. And I was like, no, no, we're not. You know, I didn't even have a concept of the world beyond my own place, my own family. And people need to understand that that is how people with traumatic brain injury do see the world. So I think that's my, my biggest message is just listen. We don't know things. We don't maybe know things that everybody else knows. Listen to us and be patient with us. Well, it is a pretty amazing story that you've set out in I Forgot to Remember. I've been talking with Sue Meck. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. If you're subscribed to us on iTunes, thank you for that. And if you're not subscribed on iTunes yet, it's very easy to do. And either way, if you get a moment to rate and review the podcast, that would be really great in that it makes it a little bit easier for other people to find the podcast themselves. I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon, and thank you for listening. Take care.